building in healthcare takes a lot longer. So make sure that you're managing your cash appropriately. And then making sure that you have the right milestones and guidelines as you scale. Welcome to Startup Health Now, the podcast where we celebrate the entrepreneurs and innovators who are transforming health. I'm your host, Logan Plaster. On our episode today, we're getting down into the details, deep in the weeds, in order to understand what it takes to scale a healthcare business to 100 million. For that wisdom, we turn to Sophia Guerra, investor at Bessemer Venture Partners. We add her on to our masterclass series to share top takeaways from a recent benchmarks report that was published by her firm. She distills that very detailed work into five key takeaways, and then she hung around to answer questions from her audience of startup health founders. In this session, which is hosted by Jamie Edwards, Chief Platform Officer over here at Startup Health, Sophia gets into all the critical operational, financial, and clinical performance metrics that healthcare companies need to care about if they're going to thrive and scale. For the purpose of this podcast, we'll drop you right into the middle of the conversation between Jamie and Sophia, focusing on her advice for founders. Here's Sophia. We've always believed at Bessemer that building in healthcare is not for the faint of heart, and you always should be armed with the best information to attack that uh, problem. So I want to share with you kind of five top takeaways or key lessons on how to scale a healthcare business and how do these change um, across the stages as you are building um, a, a business that's going to get to $100 million or beyond that. So lesson number one, um, innovating in healthcare takes time and patience. It is no surprise to anyone in this Zoom that achieving scale innovation in the healthcare system requires a lot of patience and time. And we wonder how long it takes for healthcare SaaS and tech-enabled services businesses to get to $10 million, $100 million in annual either recurring revenue or revenue run rate. And I'll, I'll stop there because you'll, you'll hear me refer to ARR and just want to clarify that these are slightly different terms for uh, SaaS and tech-enabled services, but in general, it just means kind of your revenue run rate um, in an annualized basis. And... The reason why we wanted to look at timelines is because their investors like myself have really high expectations and on how fast you should be growing. And we were wondering, does this match reality of innovating in healthcare and what investors are thinking about? Um, and you you probably have heard the the saying of um, grow faster, grow fast, and break things. And I think that that just doesn't apply to healthcare, right? Because we're touching. We're, we're talking about people's lives and health. So how do you grow fast in a responsible way, but also make sure that the model that you're developing is repeatable and scalable, which is the most important question. Um, and the data that you're seeing here on screen, we found that the median health tech business takes three to four years longer to get to 100 million in revenue compared to the traditional cloud software business that my colleagues um, at SMR and, and, and other investors look at more generally. And while the top quartile um, of tech-enabled services can scale just as fast as cloud counterparts, we like to call um, that not all revenue is created equal on services. So this you, you can include medical costs, net revenue. So it's easier for us to think about gross profit for tech-enabled services businesses. And if you adjust that and go to the next slide, you see that 
both healthcare, SaaS, and tech-enabled services gross profit run rate, it's about 15 years. So it takes just as long. So we wanted to see how growth changes at each stage because you shouldn't be expected to be tripling in revenue uh, if you're a hundred million in, in, in revenue versus if you're 1 million, right? It's easier to double from one to two than from a hundred to 200. That's just, um, general knowledge, but what is, what is expected and what's within class? So we see on average, the, um, both healthcare SaaS and tech enabled services businesses are growing really fast, but we see that health tech enabled services maintain that faster pace of growth, even at scale. While we see kind of a, a bigger decline on the tech in, on the software side, and this we hypothesize is because um, TAMs uh, or your addressable market for the services businesses are ten times as big, um, and therefore the penetration that you need to get to or market share it's a lot less than we see in the healthcare software side. Here you're seeing uh, about two percent. Um, for tech-enabled services businesses that have been around for more than 20 years versus for TAM, you get to kind of a 15%. Uh, and like rule of thumb, what we've discussed before is a vertical task business, which is inherently building in healthcare. Um, you, you tend to want to see kind of 50 to 20% just given how narrow that market is. All right, so lesson number two, your margin, your opportunity. So like I said, for tech-enabled services, um, gross margin tend to vary a lot um, with different stages, and it's it's hard to scale. Um, it's it's something that a lot of people have been paying a lot of attention nowadays, and it's been kind of a lot of talk, but then how do we actually think about what's achievable at a very early stage when you're providing a service versus what should be expected at scale? Um, so what you see here is the gross, um, gross margins by um, each of the revenue buckets. Um, and on average, we see that an early stage one to $10 million company has an average of 25% gross margin. But then there's the pace improvement as the company scales. And we see kind of 65 plus um, gross margins and the top performer inside, especially as you scale. And I'm sure you are all wondering what happens at the 100 plus and what does it go down on the average? A lot of people have asked me this. Um, and this is because, um, well, hypothesis, right? Um, the, the types of companies that have achieved 100 million plus, and perhaps this is being skewed for those that are 500 and a billion in revenue, um, those tend to be businesses that are taking risk. So while um, you are expanding your TAM by uh, taking risk and, and providing a wider set of um, services, your gross margins are going to be lower, but there's probably upside uh, over time on, on those business models as well. Um, as you can see here, these are uh, the breakdown of their different operating expenses that we see in a P&L. So we think about this in terms of sales and marketing, R&D, and G&A. And um, as understanding really what you're investing in and what's going to be the return on that investment in your business across these three buckets is really important. Uh, and then over time, you're going to unlock economies of scale in a bunch of these investments that are going to drive improvements in your uh, your revenue growth, where we're going to talk about cat feedback, but as well as R&D investments are also going to unlock improvements in your gross margin that we just chatted uh, before.
And then lastly, in uh, a metric that a lot of folks are paying attention on the investing side is how efficient can you grow and how much capital do you need to scale, right? And uh, admittedly, building a tech-enabled services business is a lot more capital-intensive than building a software business. Um, but the the interesting thing that our data has shown us is that of the 100 companies that we've included in the data set that we think highly of that are all venture-backable, um, the, the free cash flow margins are a lot lower in the one to 10 million category, but they get to be pretty good uh, and, and even better than cloud once they achieve scale. And that's because we think that scale builds a mode in healthcare and there is a nice flywheel in terms of once you've hit a certain scale velocity, there's a flywheel with your customers and the way you're negotiating rates and, and all the things that you, you know specifically about healthcare that will enable you to just go more efficiently with the right business model. Lesson number three, how to nurture your customer relationships is incredibly important in healthcare. Um, uh, retention is your best friend, right? There are long sales cycles in healthcare. Getting in the door is just the first step in our opinion. And you gotta nurture that relationship. Make sure that you're quantifying what value you're providing to the customer. If that's a health system or pay or pharma or even a patient, right? From their eyes, what are the outcomes that you're providing? What's that clinical and financial ROI that you're providing to them? And the metric that I'm showing you on the screen here is kind of that second effect on this, which is your net dollar retention. So once you've landed a client, how are you landing and expanding that relationship? Um, and that drives a lot of value to healthcare businesses, both across healthcare software and tech-enabled services here. Um, just to like quickly point out the average of a normal enterprise uh, SaaS business outside of healthcare has an average of 120% net dollar retention. We're seeing in uh, healthcare software and tech-enabled services businesses to have 140, 100, uh, 200% um, net dollar retention. So this is really, really important. Um, another metric in this bucket is CAC payback. And that's just how do you think about return on investment um, for your sales and marketing dollars? Uh, you can see here that uh, tech enabled services businesses have a high um, CAC payback at first. But once they hit 25 million plus, that cap payback comes down. Um, and while we see healthcare software businesses just have generally lower cap paybacks, and even compared to um, cloud businesses um, in other parts of our portfolio at Bessemer. And I think um, this just kind of shows the importance of uh, the flywheel effects that exist on um, nurturing your customers that we've been talking about. But secondly, on the tech enabled services side, as you you prove outcomes, you're gonna sell better and kind of expand accounts, that's one. But then two, as you improve gross profit or your gross margin, um, your payback is gonna be better because th all of this is gross profit adjusted as you can see in, in um, the formula on the bottom left. So as we talked about, sales cycles in healthcare are longer. We estimate that they're almost twice as long as um, any kind of cloud business. Um, but we also think that there is twice the value on what you're unlocking for, for those accounts. Um, what you see on the right here is just the average top and bottom quartile of all of the businesses that are in the data set, um, the LTV to cap ratio. 
Um, a cloud business has a four LTV to CAC ratio. We see that tech enabled services businesses have a six and healthcare have, uh, have an average of 5.3, but there is some of them that can go up to 10 times LTV to CAC. Um, so it's really important to kind of unlock that value. And then again, be very patient to nurture those customer relationships. Um, lesson number four is a love note to efficiency. I feel like the word efficiency has been kind of thrown around and um, very much discussed everywhere these days. But one of the questions that um, we've been asked a lot from some of the data that we've been, been putting out and reporting on on our website is how much do benchmarks have changed, right? Because isn't your data set looking back at the past five years of companies that were growing at all costs and spending in lots of different things. And, um, what we've been able to actually look is because we built a longitudinal data set, our data goes back to uh, 2010 all the way to today. So we actually looked at what did the cash efficiency score look like for companies that were growing before 2015, between this 2015 and 2019 era, and then post 2020 to today. Um, and then you'll see some differences here, but I think the the main takeaway is a cash efficient business is something is a business that has more than one um, cash efficiency score, and that's where you should strive to be, right? And let me just take a pause and explain what cash efficiency score is, and because it's very important. So, as an investor, I think about your burn and what that return on that burn dollar will be, and how it's going to scale over time. So. We think about net new annualized run rate revenue divided by burn. And we we look at companies that likely have one or more of that. Understandably, this is not going to be the case at every stage. So we also have benchmarks on what burn, cash efficiency score will look like when you're a one to ten million dollar business versus when you are at scale. And that will that will be very different. So I'll encourage you all to to look at those numbers. Um and then here we have just private valuation multiples, um, both for tech-enabled services and healthcare SaaS. I think one of the mistakes that we all did as investor made as investors over the last few years was just thinking that tech-enabled services were just like healthcare SaaS businesses. And actually, the data that I just showed you before shows that there are like a lot of nuances and differences uh, fundamentally in the business models. And therefore, we shouldn't value tech-enabled services businesses on the top line alone, which is the the multiples that you're seeing on the left. Um, instead, we we have been thinking a lot more about how do we value businesses on a gross profit basis or adjust um, revenue multiples to gross margins, depending on where you're at and what um, at the scale you're at and the gross margin that you have been able to achieve so far. Um, and our PE counterparts think about volume businesses on EBITDA multiples, but we want to make sure that we're not encouraging businesses to become profitable right away and then be growing kind of at really slow paces because you kind of are trying to maximize your EBITDA. But instead, you're making the right investments that are unlocking um, an exponential rate the way that you are growing revenue and also improving your gross margin and gross profit. And then the last metric I'll talk about um, that is important for a founder to think about is what's that ARR per FTE and how you're scaling your team to achieve or unlock 
uh, revenue over time. And this is kind of what we see across healthcare software and tech-enabled services. You see that the ARR FTE is a lot lower for tech-enabled services in the very early stages, but then you kind of totally unlock um, a lot more value once you hit 50 million in ARR or more. And then the last lesson uh, that I'll, I want to leave you uh, with is just managing cash and planning your way to the next milestone. Like we said, in, uh, building in healthcare takes a lot longer. So make sure that you're managing your cash appropriately and then making sure that you have the right milestones and guidelines as you scale. We've shown you a bunch of data throughout the presentation. We actually have made this public, um, all of the benchmarks and across all of these KPIs and business models. So I encourage you to go and look at the right um, revenue bucket that you fall into. And then where do you, where do you fall in this? Are you, uh, is it in the average bucket? Is it the top word tile and bottom word tile? And then I'll also say, we're not looking for businesses that are all top word tile. And that's the only businesses that are gonna get funded these days. The bar is high. But it's about knowing your numbers and understanding the nuances of historical performance and why perhaps you were spending higher percent in R&D uh, last year versus what you're going to unlock the, the next year and the year um, the year following that. So there's a story behind the numbers. And we just like when founders come to us and say, hey, look, like I fit in this three three categories. I'm the top four talent, so two, I'm average. But this, these and these are the reasons why that's the case. Um, and that's kind of the type of uh, thinking and knowledge that, that we'd love to kind of have founders share with us and, and iterate with um, as they're thinking about kind of their plans for the future. Let me stop there. Because I just talked for a really long time. Yeah, so Sophia, there's so much there to unpack. We probably need a three or four hour call to do it all. Um, but really quickly, where is the magic at the $100 million mark? Why isn't it scaled to 50 million or scaled to 25 or scaled to 150? Most businesses from a revenue standpoint really never reach that $100 million mark. Um, is there a magic to it? Um, why that number? It's a great question. Honestly, I think it's a nice round number. Um, and then I think the back of the envelope that a lot of investors think about is, it used to be like, hey, like if you get to a hundred million and there's a 10x multiple on that, you're going to be a billion dollar company. That's like the really basic rule of thumb. I think what I'll say is, like I showed you, that is very different for a tech-enabled services business than a software business. And you'll you can see on our data set we have companies that are are a billion in revenue uh, or more, right? Five hundred million. So I think if you're a tech-enabled service, maybe you should aim to be at 100 million in gross profit instead of um, ARR. Great. As a reminder, if you are on the call today and would like to ask Sophia a question, please do so. I'm actually going to start fielding some of those questions now. Uh, Sophia, so here's one. Hello, Sophia. I studied your report when it was issued. I want to send my extreme thank you for the valuable information. I want to ask you about the notion of healthcare innovation taking time. In current market conditions where most investors are looking for recurring high top line metrics in order to invest, how do these concepts align? Um, you're looking for high growth, but yet it takes time and some duration to actually, you know, achieve the mission or get to get to scale. Yeah. Maybe let me take a step back with that question. So you're saying um 
the capital intensity and the early stages and how difficult it is to kind of hit the task growth. Correct. Yeah. I mean, look, like growth and efficiency is a delicate balance, right? Um, and I think the the reasoning or um, the the motivation on kind of the pushback and the recent market is cost of capital has gone up. So your ability to invest $1 in your own business is going to cost you more in terms of equity than if you would have done it last year. Um, so I think that it's important to like know the business model and all the little knobs that you can tweak to make sure that acquiring one customer is going to be profitable for your business versus acquiring a customer that you're just losing money on. Um, and I think it has to do with how much does it cost you to acquire that customer? but also how recurring or reoccurring that revenue is, right? Because if you're spending capital to acquire a customer that you're going to lose money in the first 12 months, but that customer is going to be sticky and stay with you for five plus years, then it's worth it. So how does the math kind of uh, work to make sure that you're building a business that is um, sustainable and, and here to stay? So building on that, um, ramping ARR looks to be a clear driver of success. Um, should founders only be looking to recurring revenue subscription models as kind of a core model they should be looking at? Um, how could this be applied in a fee-for-service versus a value-based care world? That's a great question. And for tech-enabled services businesses, I think there's a lot of nuance on what what revenue is and how do you define revenue? I don't think that one dollar revenue is equal for every company. It's it's defined very differently. Um, I would probably think about um, how to make it more apples to apples, right? To to make sure that you're understanding your investments and the revenue that you're bringing in the, in the on in the door. Um, but then also, how are you nurturing those customers for the revenue to be reoccurring? Because um, when we think about as venture investors, we want to invest in companies that are going to scale exponentially, not linearly. So once you acquire one customer, even if it's like a payer, for example, you may be providing a service to a certain patient in that employer population or that payer population, but more people are going to get sick over time and you have that contracting relationship with the payer and the employer and you're going to have the ability to engage that um that patient so we we care about reoccurrency um and the nuance for tech enabled services is a lot harder to calculate we'll we'll talk about the the template in a little bit but we calculate tech enabled services recurrent revenue on a cohort basis so how do you think about the relationship like you have one contract with say an employer or a payer and how that has evolved over time it also seems, Sophia, if we elaborate or extrapolate on kind of that thought, markets change over time, and a company that is early in our market will experience certain dynamics um, that affect their ability to scale and their margins. And then as that market becomes more competitive, those dynamics change as well, and they'll suffer from commoditization over time. And I think that was one of the interesting things when you had your healthcare innovation takes time slide, seeing that the, you know, a lot of founders think it's, hey, it's three to five years and I'm building my company. It's actually more like seven to 10 to 12 years. So you reach that scale. Um, you know, what are your thoughts there? How does scale into a hundred? Is there an optimal point for you as a VC to think about 
exiting or where valuation is at its maximum if markets get more competitive over time? The good question. Um, I think while markets get more competitive over time, like I said, scale drives modes in healthcare and then your ability to really have referenceable customers and like outcomes on the clinical and financial ROI side, it's going to like improve your economics like greatly. Um, so while maybe there's one or two or three kind of other other competitors in the space, um, I think that just the ability to be there longer and to have the the longitudinal data that to provide um, evidence to your customers is going to like really unlock um, your ability to kind of grow. But then the second thing is on the tech-enabled services side, the TAMs are really, really large. We're talking about sometimes $100 billion in TAM. So I don't think that there's like a winner-take-all dynamic in certain markets. There can be multiple. Seems like really quickly that we have uh, lost. So yes, we can work on getting her back. Great. Um, you know, in the meantime, um, with the last question that we asked around why the hundred million dollar mark was a uh, kind of a magical number, um, Stephen Krause, who's also uh, a real partner, um, had responded in the chat. But the other answer is that generally, hundred million was the general point at which companies could be considered also IPO ready. So if you take a look at the public markets. Um, $100 million is the mark of a company that is at scale. Sophia, welcome back. Start yeah, sorry. My computer totally turned off. Um, <laughs> this has never happened to me, I promise. I've had the worst tech issues this week. It is okay. One of the other questions that we got, um, and this will be, I think, an interesting one to get your perspective on. Are there any data on companies that focus on, you know, being bootstrapped versus taking institutional capital. Have you looked at the dynamics there? Clearly, the companies in your portfolio while taking money from Bessemer. Um, but you know, has there been any thought to you know what the optimal capital stack looks like for these founders? I don't. I don't think that there's an optimal capital stack. I think that there's decisions that you need to make as a founder on the implications that that come with taking venture capital money and. Um, the type of outcome honesty that you're you're striving towards, I will say the data is all for venture backed companies because obviously, um, as investors, we're thinking about okay, how do we evaluate some of these businesses and then how do we compare them? Um, as as come we diligence them, we uh, help our portfolio companies. So, I I would just caveat that everything that you saw today and then you'll you'll see on atlas on on our bessemer um website is is all about venture capital businesses all right another question from the audience um thank you for the feedback on gross margin differences between SaaS and tech enabled services have you identified if sgna and capital expenditures have similar differences between categories Sorry, repeat that. So SGNA and So have you identified SGNA and CapEx are similarly treated amongst categories between tech enabled services and SaaS? What is the Yep. How does CapEx look versus SGNA and how does that affect your ability to scale? 
Um, so capital expenditures is included in our free cut, like our free cash flow cut um, uh, metric, um, and it's not included in SGNA. We like break up sales and marketing, and then GNA. Um, and generally, for tech-enabled services businesses, especially those that have kind of brick-and-mortar components, tend to have higher capital expenditures. Um, whereas in software, um, we don't see kind of those those capex investments. Um, that's probably like the by like top of mind thing that I will um, explain. Sophia, if you are a free revenue early stage startup and you're looking at this research, why is this important and how should it be integrated into an early stage founder's thinking? I get I get a lot of emails and questions um, about this, and while I'll say is these these metrics are not relevant to you right now, and the reason is one, it's very early, and there, you don't have as much data, right? And like your revenue, which is the denominator for a bunch of this category, technically speaking, um, is is very small. But the second thing is getting from one zero to one requires a lot of iteration and you're going to be spending capital and trying different things that ultimately may not be where you end up your business model at. So thinking about how you're efficiently scaling or spending uh, those dollars has a really different implication than, okay, once we hit product market fit, what are those investments that are making to my business model to scale efficiently? So that's what I'll say, like, don't worry too much about the specific data points. What I will say it's important is to just understand the implications of the different business models and unit economics on that business. So while maybe it's a theoretical exercise today, what are what are the implications of your average revenue per user on a tech-enabled services business? And then how much ability to play with the care delivery model you have to make a profitable business or a profitable unit economics, right? So all, all of it to say is it's more theoretical because you're testing a bunch of things, but it's important to know the fundamentals um, as you think about um, what business model you're choosing. So let's build on that for a second. You know, in in prior markets, growth at all costs was a strategy many founders followed. So deploying large amounts of capital to drive user revenue growth was the you know state of the day. This has moved to profitable growth mantra in current markets, and VCs no longer seem willing to, you know, pay for eyeballs as it might be. What is the normal timing founders should be thinking about to get free cash flow positive? And one of our um, attendees said, you know, do I read less than two correctly to say that among the data set, free cash flow was negative until 100 million ARR? And that's right. I'm surprised that it requires that much ARR to get to free cash flow profitability. Certainly higher than I would expect. What could drive it to require so much ARR? I think that there are obviously nuances on the companies that are on each of the business models, and candidly, the the timing, right, of what those like when those companies went public, and the expectations of the public markets, honestly, for them to be able to go go public. Um, I think we we were discussing like why the hundred million. Uh, as well and it just kind of feels like that's the ability for you to have enough scale to go public and then the expectation of the public market today I don't have that data here but um, happy to share that after is 
the multiples that a profitable business is getting in the public market are higher today than they were before the gap. Um, so I guess long-winded way of saying like, as long as you understand how you're acquiring, how you're burning that $1 to bring an ARR, um, you may be choosing to be burning and not hitting break even today because you're doing it in a profitable way. And then there's interest from investors to continue to fund kind of that, that scale up versus perhaps you say you want to get to 50 million in ARR and be profitable. And then the, the set of outcomes for you or kind of exit opportunities will be different. Maybe it's an M&A and maybe PE, but I think uh, to go public, we expect to be at a large um, kind of scale. And then the expectation of that public market will be different now that it was uh, three years ago. Um, another question from the audience. Uh, hello, Sophia. Fantastic presentation. As a HC-enabled startup, how do you position yourself to investors so they understand that this is truly a long-term play and capital intensive? Here's a, my question to them would be, where do you fall in kind of the, if you're early stage of one to $10 million in revenue, how do you compare to those kind of average top quartile and bottom quartile metrics, right? And I think, well, the whole impetus of the data set is to prove you are not expecting you to be incredibly capital efficient when you're in that one to 10 million, but hey, look what the set of companies have been able to achieve. And as an, as an investor, I'm expecting companies to be in the top quartile category in certain things, or those are the businesses that I'm trying to look for. Um, knowing that it's going to require more capital than if you compare them to what a software business is spending. So if you're thinking about it and you're a tech-enabled services business out there and what a VC is not willing to pay for is kind of burn on, say, you know, product development or something like that, but you are willing to pay for on burn to scale or on not being profitable so you can actually scale revenue. It's like pouring gas on the fire, right? Is there any rhyme or reason there? Is there a place that you are willing to invest and spend money on or it's not? That's where you get to, is it profitable growth? Um, and that's when you decide to put gas on the fire. It's like, are your unit economics working? If you are, your cap be back in uh, as kind of average or top word top and you're kind of engaging and retaining customers because you've shown kind of clear return and investment to your customer, even if that's on the software side on financial or clinical outcome, understanding really like are those investments you've shown so far that at a small scale, the unit economics work, and then we're going to unlock kind of and, and make investments to grow. So we're going to invest in sales and marketing because our tax payback's working. Or do we need to make investments in R&D that are going to help us today build a better platform or automate certain parts of the care delivery um, that's going to help ultimately provide or improve our unit economics or actually improve our patient engagement. So we're going to maintain kind of the retention in some of those cohorts over time. Being the devil's in the details, but that's kind of how I would think about the different nubs of the business model. So you can tweak. So quick one on CAC. We have a, a question from the audience there. Um, you know, CAC for a lot of health tech enabled services founders is a little bit foreign, like very common, obviously in SaaS, but not as common on the health tech enabled, just as part of the lingo and lexicon. 
one of the questions is it's always challenging defining the customer in this metric. With an average of 18 months, you must be identifying the plan payer as the customer. Um, in other words, is the, the user isn't always the customer, right? A hundred percent. That's um, that's the complicated nature of healthcare. Um, I will admit a vast majority of the tech-enabled services are B to B to C, which where you're saying the B is the customer, how we define it. Um, there is D to C as well, and you can. I think that the nuances of retention curves are very specific to to those, but. Yeah, we think about the client or the customer as a payer, employer, um, and the patient is just the C, right? But when you think about TAP, we think about all of the investment in sales and marketing that goes, signing those contracts, and then activating those numbers as well. Um, we 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 think about the, the payback on the entire both B2B and B2C marketing and sales that go into it. Um. For a seed stage company, is another question from the audience. Um, you cite three years median to a $10 million run rate. Is that from founding or from the date that a round was published? Sorry, um, these are very specific data questions. So, yeah. So, for seed stage companies, you cite three years median to a $10 million run rate. Is that from founding or from the date a round was published? Uh, it is. So, we our back of the envelope way of getting to this is when they were founded. Um, so the okay. date that's available on PitchBook. Okay. Um, you know, I got to ask the question because we're all health tech entrepreneurs online right now. Um, how is scaling a health tech company different from other industries? Does the research yield any type of special circumstances or skills required by a founder to scale a health tech business versus another? Um, is it applicable to tech-enabled services startups versus pure SaaS startups? So healthcare tech in particular, is there a difference in how you need to run a health tech business versus one from another industry? Yeah, I mean, that that's the whole emphasis of, of doing this, right? Of It's it's totally different. Um, while maybe healthcare SaaS, it's a lot closer to what you would see in other vertical SaaS um, uh, categories. I think Selling in healthcare is particularly um, different um, because you have an enterprise like go-to-market strategy. You have a bunch of regulation around it, um, and then you have big incumbents, right? So um, the whole reason we, we wanted to provide more data and facts on how to scale is just because selling in healthcare is harder and um, it requires very particular type of knowledge. So uh, we we don't talk about this, but one of the things that we love to say as a team is that we look for bilingual teams. Uh, and by that, we mean on the commercial side of like deep healthcare expertise and longstanding relationships to accelerate the go-to-market, but then also software and great product folks that are going to help think about how do you build a business that's scalable, like in any other technology um, segment, and not just providing services masquerading as software. Uh, and how do you kind of unlock that scalability? So certain companies have hybrid models. Um, and you might start off as a tech-enabled service company, but then realizing you've got a ton of amazing data that you can then unlock um, in terms of monetization. So how does data factor into a tech-enabled services model? 
you kind of said not every dollar of revenue is created equal. How do you view companies like that? Well, I think for if it's a clinical delivery business, the data is going to help you prove outcomes, which will inherently unlock kind of the ROI that you're providing to the system, to your customer. By that, I mean kind of what's the clinical and financial ROI for like a payer, right? What are the savings that you're providing with your intervention versus the status quo? Um, and the better that you calculate that and track it and kind of um, share it with your customers, the be- the easier it's going to be for you to to go to market and sell. I'll give you a very specific example. Um, our portfolio company, Oshi, they made a very thoughtful, um, smart decision to work on kind of a trial with a um, third party, um, a payer to kind of quantify what the impact on clinical outcomes was and then term savings for, for the intervention. And it took a year and a half to two years to get that data set. But it was so rigorous and it had a third party kind of vetting the data that it helped them unlock a ton of other contracts based on that data. And it helped them also negotiate what they were getting paid because they were able to show savings. So it doesn't only help you with like sales conversations and the speed of those sales, but it also gives you a proof point on, hey, this is what we're seeing. This is how we proved it. And this is what we think um, we deserve to get paid this amount. Sophia, thank you to you. Thank you to Bessemer for sharing this really important knowledge with all the founders out there and for supporting the value creation journey here that they all have at Startup Health and helping everyone achieve their outlook shots. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me and for everything you do for the community. Thanks everyone. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. We'll be back again with another episode next week.